afraid of the dark? That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> the critically acclaimed author of Demon's Dolls and Milkshakes returns with 15 tales of horror and suspense. With everything here is a nightmare. From zombies in the Old West to a young boy tempted by the devil. From vampires with romantic longing to an abandoned lighthouse haunted by vengeful spirit. From a serial killer getting unholy justice to an haunted English race car. Nelson W. Piles invites you to explore the landscape of fear, suspense, and horror. Take his hand and hold on tight. Remember that whatever you find there, whatever you see, no matter what you might think it could be, know this. Everything here is a nightmare. By Nelson W. Piles. Available in paperback and Kindle at Amazon.com. By Burning Bowl Publishing. said I could say hello and tell you to come visit me at victoriaslift.com sometime. My building may be old and dark, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> there are nine floors and each one takes you to a very different place. I think you'll be surprised by just where my lift can go. Most people can't find it, but you will. I'm waiting for you. I think you'll have a lot of fun here too. Unless you make the wrong choice. <laughs> Unless you make the wrong choice. Welcome back to the Wicked Library, everyone. Today, we're going to be sharing with you an encore presentation of the 2014 Chris Massacre episode. It was super popular. Some of you may not have heard it if you're new to the show. And uh, it's a way to kind of get us all in the Christmas spirit, right? Wicked Library style. So today we're going to play that episode for you. Enjoy it. And next week, an all new Chris Massacre episode on Christmas Eve. So make sure you tune in Christmas Eve for that. And we're also going to have a brand new New Year's Eve episode for you, and then new episodes every other week starting in January. And that's right, the Wicked Library is actually going to be going to a bi-monthly or bi-weekly. It's weird, they mean the same thing, you know? Uh, But twice a month, you'll get a fresh episode of the Wicked Library. We just have so many things going on, and uh, it's, it's tough to try to get a fresh show out every week and do it in the quality that we want to do it. So... We're going to go to a every other week format for the time being, but there's still plenty of fresh episodes to come. So sit back, relax, get in the Christmas spirit, grab some eggnog, fill it up with some whiskey or some rum or whatever your poison is, and enjoy Chris Massacre 2014. And remember, come back next week on Christmas Eve for Chris Massacre 2015 with a very special surprise from the librarian. And then again on New Year's Eve for our New Year's Eve episode and then every other week starting in January. And by the way, folks, if you want more content, if you can't get enough scary, spooky stories, I invite you to check out our other show, The Lift, which you can find at victoriaslift.com. You can also find that show in Stitcher and TuneIn Radio and next year in iTunes. But do check it out. It's a lot of fun and uh, there's a lot of great writers, some of them that you would recognize from the Wicked Library. And it's just a great spooky little Twilight Zone meets Fantasy Island with maybe a dash or two of Doctor Who thrown in. I think you guys will really enjoy it. It stars Victoria, whose voice you've heard on this show before. We'll be putting those shows out every other week. So on the weeks that the Wicked Library does not come out, you'll get an episode of The Lift. So now let's get ready to kick off the horror days with 
Chris Massacre, 2014. I just kind of wanted to do that. Now, let's get this Christmas episode rolling here. We have here right at the top a holiday message from our very own Maddie Von Stark. She, of course, uh, could not record this. You know, essentially, I have all the gear, so (laughs) that's why. And it's, you know, kind of my job. So let's listen to see what Maddie has in store for us this festive holiday season. Hit it, Maddie. A note from the desk of MVS, The Cigar Box. The top right drawer of my oak dressing table holds a very important item, a John Ruskin Perfecto Extra Cigars box from 1941. Once a year, on Christmas, I open the weekend panels and look at its contents. This year, I put my woolen feet up under me in the Winchester chair and set the cigar box on my lap. Mr. Wu, my hairless chihuahua, plops down in front of the hissing yule log. I smile and reach down to pat her on the head. She looks up at me with two very bulgy alien eyes. Only one, the right, is slightly smaller than the other, giving her a look of a pirate arg on most days. On the other days, she's a perfect creature with a perfect flaw. I stand back up and walk to the mirror. In my reflection, I can see the long line of my family and my wrinkles. I can see my mother in my curly blonde hair. And in my scar, I can see the old disappointments and heartbreak. It reminds me that God only laughs at my plans. Come brain tumor or bloody heart, I am nothing but the adversity to which I crush. So I set the needle down on Howlin' Wolf record, Smokestack Lightning. Begins as I turn back to Mr. Wu. Her whiskered nose begins keeping in time with the old blues man. They're all gone, I sigh, and take a long drag from my vape pen. Last of the Von Stark third is marched to the other side. Mr. Wu moans and places a paw over her eyes. She hates the smell of my pomegranate vape. I shake my head. It's not that bad, crazy dog, for shice. I pick up a heavy tumbler glass, made in a deep north, and listen to the ice cubes clink at the sides. I take a long gulp of Philip's blackberry brandy. Christmas Eve is getting better already. Tomorrow, the Von Stark place will be brimming with family from far and wide. A formal affair I only look forward to in order to create chaos and beleaguered mischief. Last time, it took Aunt Helena almost an hour to find her self-made scarf, clearly an oversight because of its shrewd pea-green color. I laughed to myself. I bet B would appreciate the quality of that prank. It just blended right into the Christmas tree trimmings. And now back to the Von Stark History Hour on Christmas Eve, 2014. This gets complicated for Mr. Wu. So every year I explain how every generation succeeding the first Von Stark settlers took a number. I am in the Von Stark fifth. Mr. Wu is part of the Von Stark fifth. The oldest of the Von Stark Sixth is 14 years old. And as simple as it seems, Mr. Wu is already confused in licking her right foot, which she could spend an untold amount of time licking. Last night, her left foot must have been hella tasty and took almost two hours. The Von Stark history is an American-themed collage. I have scavenged old pictures, postcards, and dusty corners to discover any small thread of my own fabric. 
The hope built from the existence of an antiquity or some familiar yesteryear warrants me hours of digging in dark places. Being part of this family has been a furious damnation and a longing grace. I have been rewarded for my just endeavors and tortured for the discord of my failures. There are no illusions in the minds of the Von Starks. Tolstoy once described German nature as self-assurance that is stronger and more repulsive than any other culture because they imagine that they know the truth, their science, which they themselves have invented, but which for them is the absolute truth. My family believes in God, America, and capitalism. This is the trifecta of logic governing the absolute iron fist of the Von Stark nature. When I was a kid, every Sunday after Mass, my grandfather, Henry Von Stark, would stop at the kids' table and pat me on the head. Zeit und Geduld, he would whisper over my shoulder. I knew from our fishing trips on the Black River that edict translated to, There are two superpowers in the world, time and patience, and the Von Starks wield both. I was the only girl in the fifth. Ein Hubschis Matchen. I was treated like the rest of the soldiers, albeit children. I learned how to hunt, fish, plant fields, cut trees, make paper, run, read, swim, play baseball, read more, eat cheese, shovel snow, mow grass, clean windows, wash clothes, make beds, take showers, harness the sun, command the rivers, commandeer the wildland, play hard, drink harder, drink beer, shotgun beer, smash cans, drink whiskey, drink them if you got them, roll tobacco, smoke cigars, smoke cigarettes, chew snuff, work till quitting time and start all over again, schnell, schnell. We were taught to never yield to danger, pain, solitude, or poverty. The angel Gabriel had tripped over and fallen on the Von Stark's sword. No bullshitting the troops here. We are the only truth. God's new bandolier. My great-uncle Thomas died in the hands of the honored third's silent killer, Diabetes, America's most blatant assassin. Still, he was 86 and still a soldier first, papermaker second, and Von Stark fucking third. He was as jacked up as the day he died as he was the day he jumped the Sioux Line train to World War II. According to witnesses, his last words to the physicians as he vacated hospice were, I'm going home now. The next time you will see me is across the street. And he points out the window in the goddamn boneyard. And he had kept his word. I take another drink of the brandy. I pick up an old photo of Thomas standing in his army blues with a tank in the background. So many thoughts run through my mind. Back on Christmas in 1942, Thomas, along with his three blood brothers, Henry, William, and Nicholas, jumped ass-first into German-occupied North Africa, screaming, Stark Krieg, you fucking krauts! Regardless of weather, navigational, and communication problems, the boys of the U.S. 509 Parachute Infantry brought down the airfields of Tefraui and La Senia in Operation Torch. For me, there has been no escaping the painful, dangerous, solitary, or impoverished events of life. The Von Stark blade never dulled on me in these battles, nor did I give even one idle thought to blameless self-pity. I pulled up my guns and my big girl pants and hung in, and there was no falling back. No Von Stark runs for cover. Ever. So as I close my cigar box full of the great third pictures, I feel a lump shift in my throat, and the pain in my head peel back. Because in these ramshackle old photographs and dust bunnies, I see myself. I am one of the meanest, toughest sons of bitches to ever outspeed mortar shells and scalpel blades. Our voices echo in the grand halls of the Von Stark Mansion heaven and hell. God may laugh at my plans, take sides, take stats, run the angles or run the numbers, but he can't outrun me. And next time we meet, he has some fucking explaining to do. Merry Christmas from Maddie Von Stark and Mr. Wu. Thank you, Maddie. That was uh, very fast. Very festive, and a nice little, nice little uh, look at the branches on the Von Stark tree. 
Uh, Maddie, as you may or may not know, has a book of poetry and horror art out right now. It's called Zeitgeist. If you go to Amazon.com and put in Maddie's name, it will pop right up. Buy yourself a couple copies. It's a beautiful book. Get it in print. Um, you can get it less expensively if you have a if you have a Kindle Fire or something where you can read an ebook uh, in color and stuff. All of the artwork she did for it's absolutely terrifyingly beautiful. It is the first release in the Wicked Library Publishing branch, and uh, check it out. It's really cool stuff. Go to Amazon.com. Put in Maddie Holiday Von Stark and a friend of ours. Uh, just to sneak this in real quick. Really cool guy, uh, one of our pals over at Dark Regions Press. His name is RJ Cavender, and he's having a writer's retreat at the Stanley Hotel, no less. Uh, really cool. If you are a horror writer, you can go check it out. Go to facebook.com backslash Stanley Retreat. This hotel has been inspired by the movie The Shining. Really kind of cool. Um, you should really get that stuff together. Um, more information, go to facebook.com Stanley Retreat. RJ's a cool guy. He knows his stuff. Trust me. And this is going to bring us right to our first interlude. We're going to have three of these interludes. These are going to be cool because it's what, kids? It's Christmas. That's right. You can believe any holiday, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, all of that stuff. This is Massacre, kids. And what do we have at Massacre? but Massacre carols? And we couldn't find anyone named Carol, but we went with our favorite, Jessica McHugh. Hit it, Jess. I'm dreaming of a red Christmas Just like the ones I used to know When my tinker toys tripped And mommy's blood dripped And daddy did too much blow I'm dreaming of a red Christmas The anthrax went to daddy's head Never mourn a prick once he is dead And they all Your Christmases Be red Yes, my pretty one They will be ours <laughs> Uh, I always wanted to come back from like a break like that and just laugh maniacally. We're going to hear more from Jess later. Jess has some stuff coming up. We will plug her stuff a little later. You thought I was just going to say, we're going to plug her later. Yeah, it's not that kind of show, kids. See? All right. Let's go to our next author. This is a really good, creepy-ass Christmas story written by the co-creator of the Society 13 Network, and I'm talking about my friend David Fairhead. Dave was the first author to ever have a show on this program. He was uh, way back in the mist in season one, episode one, the pilot episode, his story, The Fall, which has morphed into a full-length novel called The Fall of Tomorrow. It is available from our fine friends over at Burning Bulb Publishing. Those guys are cool. You should go to Amazon, check him out. Dave is also the host of Kettle Whistle Radio, rocking over 100 episodes right here on Society 13. I know you listen. If you don't listen, you should go check it out. Really cool stuff. And uh, we're going to just rock out with our Christmas sock out. I'm not going to get dirty, I promise. All right, we're going to listen to David Fairhead, or as it says on the cover of his book, David J. Fairhead. We'll have some more plugs for Dave later on in the show. This is called Baron. Baron. 
Captain Baron Polinski flipped on autopilot toward the blue gem in the void. Stuart Hayes, his co-pilot, along with Virginia Pentress, were all going home for Christmas. The conversation hours ago during an anti-gravity session was full of jeers in advent of seeing their families again. Virginia was going home to her equally gorgeous husband of 13 years and their little boy and girl. She had a crag of comet rock wrapped for her up-and-coming little astronaut son. These missions were redundant, yet necessary. Since NASA Elite first landed a remote unmanned probe on a passing comet, the new space race became a game of nabbing samples of the passing particles. In his early 40s, Captain Barron was jaded with the world, seeing enough human hatred and disgust. Without a family to worry about back home, the vastness of space with its quiet emptiness was welcoming. It will blow his mind. Virginia had smiled with her beautiful gleaming teeth over narrow crimson lips, thinking about her young son opening the Christmas wrapping paper to reveal a genuine space souvenir. Captain Barron fixated on her olive green eyes behind her shaggy brown locks that fell to her tiny bosom, thinking how lucky her polo playing husband was. What was the spoiled rich boy's name? Blaine or something? He thought through a fake grin. Stuart Hayes had just rubbed his stubbly red head of fuzz, rolling his eyes, not connecting with anything that resembled emotion. Hayes was the youngest of the three-man crew. Shrewd, cunning, a businessman. He had what it took to be an astronaut physically, but Baron knew he was an alpha in his own mind, incapable of taking orders, bipolar, unproven of course by a NASA elite specialist, or he never would have been eligible, manipulating and strong for his thin stature. Virginia took orders well, where Hayes questioned every motion inferred by Captain Barron. Even erecting the Christmas tree, Captain Barron's last order for them. We can be home for Christmas. Virginia's smile was infectious, placing a silver and red ball back in place on the tree that had fallen. In another life, Barron saw himself with her instead of home, with several empty Jameson bottles. It was she that had dusted off the old box containing the fake tree that Baron had insisted they bring with them, knowing that NASA Elite was going to order them on the return flight through space dust on Christmas Eve. Was it hours ago? Then came the transmission. The arrow-headed shuttle, named MT-1, spliced the pitch of space with Earth in its sight. Captain Baron was seated next to the robotic haze. Ignoring the coldness of his co-pilot, he continued to look at the seemingly small jump between their ship and their home, a bright white and blue marble on the infinite blackboard. Virginia had placed a soft hand on both of their shoulders behind them. The scent of her long waves of brown hair was overwhelming, roses and honey. How did she manage to maintain a wonderful scent in the bleakness of space, the captain remembered thinking. Baron adored her comforting tone, too. Look at the red and green lights off the Russian satellites left of the moon. Christmas in space. Do you think they did that on purpose? It's pretty. Elated with the return flight, Baron longed for more of her touch. No, that's just their formational transponders. Nothing creative happening there, dear. Hayes doused her flame as soon as he could. His tone was still resonating the stolid anger he had for the both of them. Breaking code, bringing a piece of the comet on board was beyond regulations. There had been a small spat between Hayes and Baron about the subject that dissipated as quickly as Virginia could run to her cubby space in the drop room to write out a card and wrap up the hollow rocky remnant for her little boy. The intercom had come on with a beep, followed by a bling. Then the gravel-laden hum of a very inhuman tone filled the cockpit, droning with forewarning authority. Deep in human sounds resonated throughout the cockpit, bouncing off the white walls and rainbow-pocked consoles. Baron had a vision of his childhood, sitting in front of his grandma's fan, talking into it. It sounded like a child's voice filtered through a network of barbed wire mesh. Where's that coming from? Look! Hayes pointed at the blinking blue light on the console. It's not an outside source. That's an onboard intercom. The drop room. Glee turned to dread in Virginia's voice as the two men whirled in their seats to lock their eyes on her. We 
The tone was thick with threat, more growling than spoken the second time. Is this some kind of joke? How far are we from the Poseidon space station? Baron asked Hayes. Captain, no, it's not a remote message. It's coming from on board. Hayes' deep blue eyes penetrated Baron's gray eyes with a sincerity. A red light blinked upon the vibrant green of the operations console. The two of you go, armed. There are life form readings. When you get to the door, wait for me. I'm putting a distress signal out and contacting the Russians. This could be a prank. It sounds like a prank, right? Baron was nervous. This is impossible, Hayes said in a huff, unstrapping the pistol from under the flight's gears. Then he and Virginia disappeared through the sliding door. The distance between the MT-1 and Earth had narrowed in the two hours that had passed since the hoarse vocals had haunted the cockpit. Baron still stood with his back to the slanted window, his backside resting on the pilot's seat. Sweat stained his blue jumpsuit to a darker shade, as did the urine that soaked and cooled at his crotch. His arms hung at his side, waiting for the next order to come. We go with you. Pilot, or die. Rolling his gray eyes toward the ceiling, Baron's mouth hung open. A brown slime coated a network of tendrils above him, connecting to a bulbous head with yellow eyes. The stinking long limbs that stretched across the ceiling of the cockpit, dangling like some perversion of an octopus sprawling out its pulsating arms, claiming the room like a spider wields its web. The only discernible facial characteristics were the yellow eyes the size of golf balls. There were two of them, running their atrocious brown tentacles like roots all around the ceiling, now creeping to the floor, vibrant with their recent nourishment. Traces of the wrapping paper of red and green with Santas and snowmen on it that Virginia had so lovingly prepared for her son now hung off the fecal-looking tendrils and torn shreds. Baron glanced at the tree in the corner one more time before following orders from these beings that referred to themselves as the Bogwas. There was no telling whose organs were whose now. Either Hayes's bladder or Virginia's hung in the center of the festive tree, gelling over the fake branches in the center like a deflated eggplant. Intestines draped in mockery around the tree perfectly from the top to the bottom just how Baron remembered his father had placed the old string of big red and green bulbs. Two human hearts were draped off of lower branches with fresh gore. What must have been bits of lungs or possibly fatty tissue was shredded like tinsel, waving in the breeze from the oxygen flux. Was that a liver on top of the star? The scent of freshly cut meat was heavy. Captain Baron's mind left moments before he noticed the treetopper. The sound of the creatures feeding was worse, chewing, sucking through the very pores of their tree-root-like bodies stuck to the ceiling. Earlier, when the door initially opened, the two beings had slithered across the ceiling with Virginia and Hayes struggling desperately in the grasp of their numerous tentacles, only to be picked apart slowly while screaming. Skin sizzled, hair burned, the suits vaporized while their vitals were being stripped from the inside out. They only consumed the flesh and bone before Baron, absorbing his crew in their elongated forms, leaving the organs behind to decorate the tree to appease Baron. Tradition. Both the creatures hummed simultaneously moving their molten heads to the side like children asking for a cookie. They gazed at him with their yellow eyes, waiting for a reply. The ship continued its course for home. Dashing through the snow, trying to get away, with a corpse in tow, to ditch it in the bay. Sirens start to shout, making my speed build. Who knew they would care about the mall Santa I killed? Shotgun shells, shotgun shells, leave them to my door. Hope they don't find the owls I stashed beneath the floor. <laughs> This can get real tired of me 
coming back just laughing my ass off in your ear, isn't it? It's not very Christmas-like. No, no, it's not. That was Baron by David J. Fairhead. Go check out Dave on Facebook. Kettle Whistle Radio, man. You got to check the show out. He's got some cool stuff in there. And another lovely seasonal beating from Jessica McHugh. <laughs> what we have next is one of my favorite authors of all times. And I'll tell you, one of the cool things about doing what I do is every once in a while, you get to meet some of the people you really like. And in this case, I got to meet the guy before I read a single word that he wrote. The guy's name is Brady Allen. And Brady had a killer episode on this show a couple seasons back. Look for him. Listen to it. He's he's akin. I, I compare his ride. He's not a typical writer. If I'm going to compare him to anybody, I'm going to compare him to Mark Twain. And I've only reserved that for one other author, and that's our pal Joe Lansdale. He's kind of in that ballpark. He just he's really, really good at laying the words down. And he went through a small amount of hell to get this story into me for this episode. So sit back, relax. Let's check out some fabulous word poundings of Mr. Brady Allen. Father Phil's Family Christmas Kitchen. Just after Mr. Lou Nacy's alarm went off, despite his having not set it and leaving it unplugged the night before, he came to the conclusion that his cat had vomited next to the bed. He liked, even loved, his cat vagary. But this was unacceptable for the start to a day. Disgusting. Jesus, life perpetually had to do with eating or being eaten up, which is exactly like it was to splat your fat single-man foot into any manner of vomit. However, then, when he couldn't find an open space on the floor upon which he could place his nighttime icicle foot, he realized that the floor, or something on it, was moving slightly, and he was slightly, slightly forgiving. But this was not just cat vomit. Though it was, in fact, fresh puke warm, it seemed to be covered in small, wriggling things. Nothing bit him, nothing stung him, but still he stopped trying to stand up and get out of bed because there was no place to do so. Finally, he proclaimed that the floor was covered in worms. That's what it felt like. Warm, wriggling worms. Goddamn redneck worms. My floor is covered in worms! He screamed. A B-movie audition, if ever there was one. Worms! Worms! No one responded. Worms always made him think of rednecks and his hatred for them with their fishing and their fishy, 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 mushy food, unacceptable, dumb lives. And their hot chicks in denim cutoffs with their high New York Times IQs off of boys who left the section behind when they wanted to fuck them. This was a nightmare, a nightmare come true. It was dark, no moonlight being filtered through the curtains. He reached for the table lamp, but it clicked and clicked without turning on. He noticed then that his alarm clock had no glowing green numbers on it. Strange, since its buzzer had just awakened him. He surmised that he must have barely dislodged the plug from the outlet last night, but not enough to shut it off. Its buzzing had done so, though. Surmising while groggy is easy, but ultimately useless. He just wanted to go back to sleep, to sleep and to sleep through most of Christmas Eve day and Christmas as he had intended. But here he was, wide awake, seemingly before sunup, and something oozing was covering his floor. But in the back of his mind, he recalled having made a commitment. Supper, somewhere today. Christmas Eve for a man, Father Phil. Father Phil? Phil, Father, fill her up. Oh, God, no. Had that really happened? He was afraid it might have. He had been shopping in the store with all the red bullseyes for his cliched single man's, single yuppie man's. 
holiday meal stash and a few gifts to himself, but then he'd been invited by a big, burly-bearded, beer-bellied, bow-hunting, big-barreled shotgun man. Father Phil, a Father Phil's family kitchen, fill her up! To come and accept from them a place for the lonely, the downtrodden, the insecure, the needy, the folks of all kinds of folks, among folks who needed to be part of something, some damn thing, bigger and greater, and, and, and a mixture to feed all, all the children's and kitties and babes and growers and eaters and baby, baby, babes learning the way, though they were gamey, a bit gamey, but squirrels were, too. And them dumplings, Lou Nacy tried to calm down. Contemplation time, yuppie meditation, indecision, and chicken shittery. Lou Nacy needed to get his shit together. He scooted back toward the center of the bed, pulling his feet up, so his heels rested on the bed frame, his Achilles tendons pressed back against the mattress. His bladder was fully contracted, and he tapped his knees together repeatedly, trying to ward off the urge to urinate in force. Made you feel like a big pisser, like a big swinging dick redneck. So he could just urinate all over the worms, but it would be more to clean up in addition to them after he figured out how to get out of bed and get started on that, and the urine scent would probably soak into the hardwood. He wondered if the worms were slimy or muddy and disgusting. What worms weren't? He supposed he'd use a snow shovel to clear his immaculate hallway. Ugh. Now, though, he heard a popping of sorts, and when he reached a hand over the edge of the bed, it felt even warmer, almost as though the worms were bubbling. These worms were beyond him, belonged to others. As he tried to process everything, his mind went back to his cat, where was Vagary? He called out. Yeah, kitty, 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 kitty. Nothing. Kitty, kitty! He heard the cat this time. He wished he hadn't. Meow, meow. Vagary? Meow, meow. Kitty? Kitty! Kitty! And then there was a snap and a crunch and some chewing, gurgling noise and flap! Something hit Mr. Lou Nacy right in the face. Vagary, for sure. He clutched him tight, put his nose to his soft fur, touched his big, overly furry feet and felt around for his nylon collar, which was, uh, missing, along with his head. Mr. Lou Nacy's fingers found severed muscle, matted fur, blood pumping and oozing, but nothing that resembled his innocent and adorable cat's head. Such was his affection that he did not drop vagary, but he held on tight and situated himself as close to the center of the bed as he could feel, and he rocked and rocked back and forth, holding his dear, dead, decapitated cat. He was cooing into the headless neck for a few moments later when he heard a voice. Detached. Time to fulfill the meal. Stew. Stew this year. He scooted forward on the bed again, and he let his right foot test the bedroom floor while he still held vagary. Well, his midsection and legs in his arms. The test was much the same as it had been earlier. There seemed to be a bedroom floor covered in worms or other such things attributed to his existence, but other than the bubbling, they seemed harmless, at least in the sense that they did not bite or sting, but merely had a discomforting presence of, well, worminess. But the heat, the warmth, hot was hot. It burned. Mr. Lou Nacy tested it, hated its squishiness, and decided to go for it. For one reason. The voice did not stop, but now it seemed to speak to anyone and everyone, though he knew he was the joke of it all. It's all white meat. Lou Nacy slipped off his bed, sunk into the wormy, bubbling warmth. He's uptight. Keep the cat. Throw in the leftover squirrel. He's almost a waste of a pot. White meat. 
Dark meat don't mean nothing. He had trouble breathing now, of course. Bubbles. Trouble. Short-lived. And there, the wine and wine folk, fast to succumb, but there are folks who'll subsist. Forget the toast. Clinging of glasses. Organs of mixing. Spectacular! Though most of Mr. Lunacy will be chucked away. Your father has had his fill. Here is Father Phil. And somebody will piss all over his bedroom. But piss on vagary. My intentions may be frightful, but your fear is so delightful, especially when you crawl. Let me go, let me go, let me go. Oh, I don't have plans for stopping, not before your knees I'm chopping. Strike a match and watch you glow. What a show, what a show, what a show. When we finally kiss goodnight, I will rip off your lips rosy red. They are going to look so good on Mr. Potato Head. Oh, my shovel will surely crack hard before I drag you to the backyard. Now I need to hide you so. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. And that is the lovely Jessica McHugh. Jess is... uh a really talented author. She writes fantastic horror. She writes really funny horror parody songs at Christmas time. And she's, she's one of the more versatile writers you're going to bump into on Amazon. She's got like 20 novels. Go find them. Just put her name in, in Amazon and move your hands away from the keyboard for a minute. Her latest novel is Darla Decker takes the cake. Um, it is part of the Darla Decker series of young adult books. Uh, really good stuff. I read the first one and you don't have to be, uh, a, a teen or a young adult to enjoy the stuff. It's really cool stuff. And also if, you know, you're, you're not a, you know, young adult, her other latest novel is called The Green Kangaroos. And to put it lightly, it'll fuck you up. If you're looking for that kind of uh, that kind of horror and, and dread, get the green kangaroos. You can put your drink on McHugh, man. She's uh, she's sound as a pound. Before that, we heard Brady Allen. That was a fun piece of story to record, man. I I just dig Brady Allen's work so much. Go find him on on Facebook and online. It is a ton of stuff. His book which is called Back Roads and Frontal Lobes. Really, really great collection of short fiction from the great Brady Allen. And, uh, man, thank you, Brady. Brady pulled that one out, man. He had, he had massive issues with technology, and he actually wrote the, the, the story by hand and then typed it up for me and shot it moments ago. You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. We're uh, we're rounding the corner here, kids. We got one more Christmas tale, and I saved this one for last. Oh yeah, one of my favorite people, who's who's. Uh, it's another example of finding an author, like finding an author that you really like, but meeting them before you actually read any of their stuff. And this author is KT Jane. KT is a smoking writer. She is fantastic. She has just such a great nasty streak in her writing and she's excellent. She's very funny. You should follow her on Facebook. KT Jane, J A Y N E. And she uh she delivers the goods on another Twisted Christmas Story, and I saved this one for last, kitties. Why don't you sit back and relax and grab a listen to the always demented K.T. Jane. The 
the last believer. The Christmas tree at the North Pole is a wondrous affair. It is bigger than an average person could imagine. It's also simpler than the average person would imagine. It is decorated by only millions of small twinkling lights. Occasionally, if one watches, they can witness the blinking out of a light or two. Just as suddenly, a few lights will illuminate as if there's a delicate balance to be maintained. Sherlock often sat under the gigantic bows of the evergreen, staring up at the tiny radiant orbs, wondering if the legends about them were true. Some nights, when the snow was newly fallen and Sherlock couldn't dress another doll or put another video game machine together, he waited quietly next to the trunk until Santa would come out and smile at the tree strangely. Sherlock would hold his breath and pray that this night would be the one that he would be left in peace, able to lose himself in the mesmerizing glow. Instead, Santa would drop to the ground and poke his cherry button nose through the branches. His black and beady eyes would squint at Sherlock, and soon a dark green mitten hand would reach in and snatch Sherlock up. Only his head and a small green hat would escape the woolen trap. Santa would drag him close and growl into his face. Get back to work, little man. Santa would then send him cartwheeling across the snow toward the workshops. Sherlock would pick himself up and trudge reluctantly back to work. It was after one such evening, when he had landed particularly hard on his jingle bell, that he stopped outside the giant doors of the workshop and formulated a plan. As he dressed dolls that night, he slipped a roll of ribbon that he was supposed to use to tie back their hair into his pocket. No dolls had ribbons that night. No one noticed. The next night, he asked to be in the stocking stuffer department. His manager was impressed that he was showing initiative and asked no questions. He just handed him a crate of candy canes and sat him down at a bench. Sherlock worked like a dog stuffing stockings that evening and managed to slide quite a few into his leggings. In the excitement and fervor of the coming season, no one seemed to notice a few less candies in the socks. At the end of his shift, the supervisor had asked if he'd wanted to try any other areas of the workshop. Sherlock paused thoughtfully and looked around. I think I would like to try the gift wrapping center. The next night, that's exactly what he was assigned to do. This continued for several nights until Santa himself came to the workshop and looked over his little elves. Sherlock noticed that Santa had nothing but disdain on his face for his jolly little helpers. No one seemed to notice. Sherlock did, though, and it inspired him to sneak back to his dorm and gather the things that he'd collected over the previous weeks. He collected his knapsack and dragged it under the North Pole Christmas tree. He stopped and looked up through the branches at the millions of lights. He had worked very hard to make sure that things would happen in a certain way for this night, and he couldn't wait for the events to begin. He opened his pack and began setting things in the snow. He skipped up to the workshop doors and crumbled sugar cookies down the path leading to the tree. He then took the sharpened candy canes and buried them in the snow just inside the branches. A complicated pattern of lights and ribbon formed a net that he gently placed on the lower boughs. Finally, he lay on his back under the branches and took out his slingshot. He didn't know if the legends were true about the lights on the tree, but he was determined to find out. The legend said that each light on the tree represented a child who believed in Santa and the magic of Christmas. Sherlock pulled the slingshot back and put a bead from Garland in it. He took a deep breath, aimed, and started shooting. He didn't expect there to be screams when the beads connected with the lights, but the noise brought Santa fast. Sherlock was shocked as the lights blinked out and the screams came but he kept shooting fast and hard until Santa dropped to the ground in front of him. Santa grunted and winced as the candy canes pierced his chest. Sherlock yanked hard and the lighted net fell down on top of him, entangling him. He growled, and the more he struggled, the more that he became hopelessly tied up. Sherlock paused in his vandalism efforts and jumped up. 
he had one last trick in his bag. He reached in and pulled out the list. He thought it would be a scroll or some similar thing. It wasn't. It was a book. A very thick book with tiny writing. It was almost as big as Sherlock himself. He balanced it on his head and ran towards Santa. Santa looked up at him and Sherlock saw fear in his eyes. What are you doing? I'm doing away with this slave shop. Sherlock swung the book so that it hit several more lights. Santa winced visibly as the tiny screams came up. Sherlock hadn't been prepared for the screams, but now that they were here, Sherlock embraced them and wanted to hear more. He grabbed Santa's belt and yanked hard until it dislodged. Stop! Sherlock grabbed the buckle of the belt and swung the thick leather strap upwards, letting it slide through as many lights as he could. Santa writhed. Sherlock hopped under the branches and swung with delirium. Please stop! You're killing Christmas! I helped sell you, fat bastard! I'm tired of working for nothing! Sherlock continued to swing the belt. By now, half the tree was dark. Santa was crying and Sherlock was reveling in the power that he was feeling. The rest of the elves were starting to gather around the tree and Sherlock could see that some of them were crying too. He continued to swing the belt and the tiny screams continued, but were getting fainter and fewer. After a while, Sherlock was unable to see any more lights. The tree was dark and Santa was barely breathing. Sherlock went out to the lawn and faced the other elves. We're free! We don't have to do this anymore! His supervisor stepped forward and shook his head. Sherlock, no one else is unhappy. We love what we do. It is our purpose. Santa's almost dead. The, the thing that keeps Christmas alive is the believers. It's what keeps Santa alive. Sherlock stopped and looked back at the pathetic fat man in the red suit. His face and beard were stained with blood. He was wrapped in Christmas finery, but unable to make it shine. Sherlock stood with his toes pointed right at Santa's nose. He kicked it and felt a satisfying crunch. He pulled his foot back again, and just as he was about to kick Santa again, he heard a very small sound and the tiniest light drifted down in front of him. It landed on his toe. Sherlock looked down at the little light hanging on the end of his foot. Santa looked up once more. Please. It's the last believer. My last chance to live in Christmas spirit. Let it go. Sherlock let the tiny light hit the ground and let his shoe hover over it. He saw the light in Santa's eyes start to dim as his foot closed on the light. He looked down at the little orb, mesmerized once more, and then felt a sharp stab in his leg. He looked at Santa, who was smiling weakly. It's not going to be enough. All it takes is one. Sherlock watched as Santa pulled a sharpened candy cane up from the ground and flung it at him. The last thing he saw as the candy cane pierced his eye was the North Pole Christmas tree illuminated with a million tiny lights. That was KT Jane, the last believer. Man, I am a big believer in KT Jane. How you like that, right? <laughs> Before that, we heard Brady Allen and we heard David J. Fairhead and we heard from our very own Maddie Von Stark. Interspersed was the great Jessica McHugh with some holiday cheer. Seasons, be I already said seasons beatings. I can't, I'm not going to repeat myself. Um, I want to thank everybody who, who comes to this show and gives us a listen, gives an episode or two a spin and then comes back 
and then tells their friends and so on and so on. It's wait, I need sympathy music. Can I get some can I get some music here? Okay, cool, thank you. <laughs> I'm the only one doing any engineering, so that's all you know, smoke and mirrors and stuff. <laughs> this show started off getting twenty five listens a month. And then the following month, it was 50. We are now eclipsing something like 28 to 30,000 listens a month. That is not tremendous numbers, believe it or not. You know, there, there are shows that do hundreds of thousands. We're not there yet, but we're on our way. But what we're doing is proving that people like independent fiction. People like horror People like good writers. And, you know, now that I got my sound shit together, people like a good sound, a good sounding podcast. It's a work of love. This is, this is all a huge effort. And the temptation to go off and do something completely different with it is always there. Something that's easier or, 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 or something like that. And, I want to thank everyone who comes and checks out our show and gives us a listen and tells a friend about the Wicked Library. Sometimes I feel like there's an angel on my shoulder. Not a religious guy by any stretch of the imagination. If you've read any of my stuff or listened to the show, you know that to be true. But sometimes it does feel like I got an angel looking out for me. And maybe that angel is an actual angel. Maybe it's a weeping angel from Doctor Who. Maybe it's maybe it's really just all of you who can come back and listen and spread the word. And that means everything. This show is a lot of work to do, and it's worth it every time I drop the mic. And the authors that appear on this show appreciate it as well. Being an author is not easy. It's not easy to go it on your own. It's not easy when you don't have to go it on your own. It's an endeavor of love. No one starts out thinking, wow, I can make a whole big fat pile of money writing horror fiction. It doesn't work like that. I don't know anybody that's wired to think that way. And the Wicked Library, we've got sponsors, sure. We have an, currently, the Wicked Library has an Indiegogo campaign for the Book 38 Horror Anthology. And the link is at the end of this episode. Stark came up with a good idea for the anthology, and we want to be able to pay all the authors in the book. We want to give you something really, really kick-ass as a great, not just as a a great collection of horror fiction, but as, as a souvenir of what you've managed to help this show become. You know, it doesn't just have to be this podcast this is a labor of love for everyone involved on the show from from me to maddie to to colin who who composes music for the show that we feature here every once in a while to kevin mcleod who doesn't even know my name but he has this great pile of music that he lets people use for stuff you may hear some of this music on on youtube videos and stuff Tony Rosick, who wrote the great theme song for this. I, I couldn't have imagined anything better. And all of the authors involved with this show, past, present, and future, we want to thank you all. I want to thank you all. And I want to wish everyone a happy holiday. Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, what, whatever it is that you celebrate. Happy Solstice, witches! Yeah! Which is! Woo! <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm 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 carried away with the spirit. I'm feeling really good right now. And thank you all from the bottom of my heart. I hope you have a great holiday. On behalf of Brady Allen, KT Jane, David J. Fairhead, Jessica McHugh, Maddie Von Stark, and Mr. Wu. Until February, maybe keep the lights on. This is Nelson W. Piles. Thank you all very much. 
Namaste. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Ninth Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bumble. Listen, The M Riding Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a 